All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome back to uh, another um, Combat Ready Wednesday. Um, tonight, we're going to be uh, talking about some, some pretty um, exciting topics, I think. We're going to talk a lot tonight about some search, some search tactics and some, some questions or some tactics or some issues that, um, that commonly come up in that conversation. So um, tonight, I'm going to be joined by a couple of uh, my good friends and instructors. So um, we got Bill Cunningham. Bill, can you, you hear us all right? Um, I'm here loud and clear. Good, good thing, buddy. And Ford is still firing up the technology out there in, uh, out there in um, uh, rural South Carolina, but I think we got the Wi-Fi connected. Ford, can, Ford, can you hear us? Ford, That's you amazing. good? Okay, he's working on it. And then uh, hopefully we're going to have um, uh, Drew Evans. Um, he is working tonight on um, Truck Company 16 in Washington, D.C., uh, where he's a tillerman. And so hopefully he is going to uh, that's what, hopefully he's going to be able to um, check in in between runs there. So, um, Ford, I think you got your thing muted if you can unmute yourself once you get your technology squared away. But there were a lot of things that kind of came in as a discussion that the things that we wanted to bring up tonight. So, you know, just kind of getting started, you know, Bill, I know one of the things we were kind of talking about uh, before we started on here was this idea of the of the verbal all clear. Um, and what does that mean? And, and so for those that might not be familiar, what I mean by the verbal all clear is that, you know, companies arrive on scene of a fire and somebody comes up to you, you know, could be the homeowner, could be a neighbor, could be a family member, could be a cop, but whoever, somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, hey, firefighters, don't worry, everybody's out. And so you get that verbal report, you know, that there's nobody trapped in the building. So, you know, Bill, I'm, I'm sure that's happened to you one or more times, you know, any experience with that? Or does that adjust your thinking or, your, or how you're prioritizing the search if that happens? Honestly, just how we we spoke earlier, the verbal all clear for me is really if I could get some information from that person pertaining to how the fire maybe had started. But as far as victims in or out of there, that person has zero credibility with me. So anything he says, it's all good. Don't worry about it. And just like we were talking about, this guy is the one that lit the fire in my eyes. You know what I mean? Like, well, I appreciate you. And I might take a step back eventually, but really we're, our tactics are still strong and we're still really just trying to get that, that big three done, just depending on where we're at in the firefight. You know, if I'm the first due company versus the fifth due and, and he says that to me, I, I'll relay that information if I get it early. Uh, well, I guess I would relay it regardless, but this guy, you know, it's not gonna change my um, search idea off the bat. Right. And, and, and I say that because, I, you know, I, I have seen departments, you know, um, where if somebody says that, you know, if you pull up and somebody says, oh, don't worry, nobody's in there. All of a sudden, the the primary search, you know, takes a back seat, and, and there's either a lot less intensity involved in it or, or in some cases it's not even done. Um, and I think that that is a very, you know, a very treacherous situation, right? So, you know, I, obviously I don't have, um, my stats handy, but, you know, I'm familiar here with what our friend is posting up on here from the firefighter rescue survey that, you know, there are a number of, 
um, vacants or a number of times that um, it's reported that nobody's in the building and obviously there ends up being somebody in the building. And, and we have that experience, you know, kind of anecdotally through the, the firefighter rescue survey. But I mean, also many of us have had that experience personally. I mean, I know, I know I've had that experience personally. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a treacherous thing. I mean, to just kind of say we're not going to search just because somebody said they were out. Yeah, I, I feel like no matter the fire, I, I take no assumption. I, I don't assume that everything's going to go smoothly. I don't assume that victims are in or out. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where you kind of just get the ball rolling. And that's, this is why we talk about command and how we have benchmarks, regardless of what information is given to us over dispatch or the person standing in the front yard, we still hit our benchmarks. And that way we can run the same scene, hopefully over and over the same way with a good outcome. I a hundred percent agree. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of just something I've always kind of said is that, you know, when, when you talk about the search, there is no redos, right. You know, after the fire, if you go in there and you find somebody passed away, you know, say just in a smoke filled environment, not even with thermal burns. And you're like, uh Oh, maybe we should have searched this. Like there is no rewind button, right? There's no like undo where you get a chance to go back there and do it again. And, and I think that's where, you know, that's kind of part of the mindset that comes together when we talk about, you know, the idea that, it, you know, it's not just what is searchable, but it's what is survivable, right? So, Drew, what's up, man? You've been working on that mustache. Good for you, brother. Oh, yeah, it's coming along great. Are you, are we live in the tiller cage right now, or? Uh, so, I, I moved up to the smart end of the fire truck, so, oh. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the driver's seat right now. It's been, uh, been a little busy today. That's how that old Southeast be kicking, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So glad you could jump on. And I know everybody, you know, I told everybody you were on the rig tonight, so you might have to jump if you get a run. But, you know, one of the things we were talking about, and, and I don't think this is an issue that we really encountered in the district, but I don't know if you've seen it elsewhere or whatever, but we were talking about this issue of the verbal all clear, you know, where somebody kind of, you know, you jump out of the rig and somebody runs up to you and says, you know, don't worry, nobody's in there. If that happens, you know, are you changing your tactics or your prioritization of the search at all? Or is that, what does that mean to you? No, I mean, there's too many variables at play there. And there have definitely been, been instances and case studies done where someone's reported everyone's been out and that's found to be false later after the fact and far too late. Um, that or that person that you run into may might not be the occupant of that that unit or that apartment uh, if you, if it is an apartment fire or something like that. So no, I don't I don't put too much stock into uh, into that into someone saying on scene, hey, you know, everyone everyone's out. I might ask again. It's gonna play in the back of my mind, but it's not gonna change the uh, change the course of any actions we're gonna take. Yeah, and you're you're probably familiar, Drew. I mean, I know there's a classic Kentland story about a fire just a block or so behind the firehouse where they, you know, as they pulled up, you know, somebody was telling the the tower crew, "Hey, no, is nobody in there?" And apparently, it was a pretty marginal situation, meaning the fire was really rocking um, and was borderline, you know, whether that was be offensive or defensive. But they had already gone in to make the search and had come out with two kids. Um, and the, the backstory was that basically there was some kind of discrepancy between a separated mother and a father. 
and and I think the story was that the father had just he had, he had had the kids and he had just brought them home and dropped them off, but he didn't want to talk to mom, so he didn't tell mom. And then mom didn't know the kids were home. House catches on fire. Mom thinks nobody's in there, and her kids were in there. And and fortunately, they continued with the search anyway. Found those kids, got them out, and and as I remember, both of them survived. Um, you know, they're very very critical, but they survived. And, th- and that's just kind of one example of like. You don't know what you don't know. And once once it's all over, you can't go back and redo it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I would I would be a huge advocate of, of erring on the side of caution. And, and um, you know, Drew, as I'm sure you remember the old Mick McKenzie saying, it's the search isn't done until we've done the search. You know, don't matter what right. nobody else says. We we clear it. Ford, are you, uh, you with us? Or, or go ahead, Bean. Yeah, can, can, can you hear me? The other scenario you might run into, right, probably less often, but that person you meet in the front yard, maybe that's the person who set the fire. <laughs> Bill said that right before it, you got it, on here. And yeah. It's a, it sounds crazy, you know, but some of us it work happens. in neighborhoods where that happens. You know? I mean, yeah. Ford, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, the the thing is, it's it's the same concept of of no matter what time of day it is. I mean, you still got to clear the search, right? Um, you know, I've had so many people, you know, even like chief officers or uh, you know incident commanders say that you know it's two o'clock in the afternoon. There's probably nobody there, or immediately it's an abandoned building, or it's you know w- whatever the case may be. But even now, man, you got to expect people in in a, you know, place of, of residence, you know, 23 and a half hours a day. You know yeah. what I mean? It just, it, it's, it's occupied. I mean, literally people are, are home more so now than they are ever. You know what I mean? I'm not taking anybody's word for it until I, I'm actually putting my eyes and hands on it to confirm for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, I mean, it's just, you know, whoever coined this axiom that it's not what's sur- what's survivable but searchable i mean they really hit the nail on it like i mean it's a deep topic you know risk analysis and size up and all that but i mean the end of the day is you know we're the people with the experience we're the people with the training we're the people with thousands of dollars of protective equipment like if if the situation allows us to search the building you know principally a residential building apartment or house that's our job. I mean, it's there's, it's just too time sensitive to sit there and him a hall about like, ah, you know, well, do you think we should search it? I don't know. They said they were all out. Like, you don't have time for that. Like, you either you either do or you don't. I mean, this is really one of those cases where, you know, talking about survivability of fire victims, seconds really do count. You know. So, anybody got any other thoughts on that topic there? So another thing I wanted to bring up, and, and, and this is an issue that I hear about a lot over the country, and I, I know from working with everybody here, it's not necessarily an issue that we face, and, and I would consider it for, consider us fortunate for that, but in a lot of departments, it has become a thing that the primary search must be done with a hand line, you know, and stretching a, you know, stretching a hand line for primary search and fire control and, and stuff like that, and and there are departments that I've talked to where they are literally not allowed to do a primary search without the crew that is doing the search having a hose line. And, and, and I say that, that 
that in some cases, the extent of what I'm talking about is not just that like, okay, you know, Ford, you're on the fire floor and there's an engine up there with you. In some places, that's not even good enough. In some places, there might be an engine up there with you, but you still have to have a hand line on your ladder company. And, and some of these crews, we're not talking about six person ladder companies. We're talking about, you know, two or three person ladder companies, you know, two or three guys going inside. What, what's everybody's thoughts on that? Um, Bill, what do you got so, on that? Or, or Ford, go ahead. So, I mean, a lot of us have worked in uh, bigger places and some of us, I've worked in smaller places. And so now, like, I'm spoiled. You know what I mean? I've got a, a plethora of manpower that gets on the scene very quickly. Um, so unprotected searches for us a lot of times, they do happen, but there's always a handline being stretched simultaneously while the, the search is going on. And if you want to say that primary has to happen with, in conjunction with a handline being deployed, in in rural USA, like I agree with that. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're arriving as the first two pumper and there's three people on that truck, then you do have to search off of a handline, right? But the to blatantly state that search doesn't happen unless there's water in line, I, I don't. I think I disagree with it. You know what I mean? Because you know, it's like in Columbia, if we if we pull up and we have confirmed entrapment or and or can see victims, you know, we, we have we have the ability to go straight into rescue mode. You know what I mean? So we, we kinda just negate the fact that there's a handline even there, we go straight to search and rescue. Yeah. Bill, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean I I, I agree with Chris. I I guess um I think that department may either have a bigger problem, like they have somebody that isn't in tune with today's fire service, or they're just in the deepest rural environment out there. And it's like, I want you to get in there and get it. But if something bad happens, you know, at least you got the hose line. You know what I mean? And I feel like if you're doing, you know, that that's, you know, a task related item and you're trying to do two task related items in one box on your, tactical command board you know it's like this unit is doing search and fire attack i really feel like you're better off just putting the fire out you know because you cannot there's no way that how, how do you decide which way to go towards the fire or away from the fire you know we're going to knock the search out i mean obviously there are a lot of variables but you inevitably end up going towards the fire if you are searching mandatory search with a as a with a hose line in your department but I feel like, and I would probably bend the rules on this too, if there's two or three people on that hose line, I, I would probably separate. You know, if I can get the, the crew in, in place, I would say, you guys got it from here, I'm gonna back out and, and maybe leapfrog a little bit, you know. And that can pose a little bit of danger though too, you know, it just depends on the skill level, I guess. Well, I, so I think there's two different scenarios that we could be talking about, right? So one is kind of, you know, Bill and Chris have both kind of talked about a little bit all right, you're you're in a low staffed environment, or or you're in a an, an area where you have delay, you know, delayed arrival. You know, all the fire trucks are getting there, you know, a few minutes apart or whatever. And you pull up, and and you're on a let's say a three person engine. You got a driver, an officer, and a firefighter, and it's John Wayne time. I mean, you're the only company on the scene. In, in that situation, I think you know, and, and Ford talked about it. I, I think you are in a situation where you might have to 
you might have to be a little bit of a Swiss Army knife. You ha- you might have mm-hmm. to stretch the attack line and try to search off of it. And and I think an important thing, and I think most people understand this, is like, you know, that's where it kind of goes into the ma- master of all trades, you know, jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Is that anytime you're trying to do two things at once, you're not doing either as effectively as you could if you were concentrating on one thing. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to do the search and you're trying to do the fire attack simultaneously with the same people. Um, with limited manpower, I mean, with this three-person or four-person crew, um, you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Both the search and the fire attack are suffering from that. But if that's all that's on scene, that might be what you have to do, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the I think the the more frustrating scenario that I've seen because I've talked to departments, I've talked to large metro departments or urbanized departments where, you know, there are multiple companies on the scene. There's, you know, there's two engines and two trucks or, or whatever on the scene, and they're still making the crew that's doing a primary search drag the attack line with them. And quite frankly, I don't get that. Um, 100% fire attack and search, it, you know, they've got to go together, right? Doing the fire attack protects the search. You know, it protects the victims. It protects the search. It buys you time to complete the search, particularly when you're searching it for an unknown victim location, you know, using oriented searches and it's going to take you a minute, you know, but like, you know, there, there are some places where it's just like, well, you got to drag that line with you. Why? Just because. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get that. Um, look, Drew, you got anything look. to add? Oh, go ahead, Bill. That's Chris. Oh, Chris, go ahead. Look, man, like, you know, simplicity, I'm sitting here just thinking while we're talking about it is our, our job's dangerous. You know what I mean? It, it, it is, it's, it's a risk that we take and the citizens that we're, you know, swearing to protect or whatever, it, you know, by delaying that just for the fact for our own, you know, selfish safety, if we will, by saying that we have to charge a hand line, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I mean? It just, I, I don't, well, especially I don't get if somebody it, else like, has hand lines. You know what I mean? If so, if, if right. you know, like from our universe where we work with engine companies and ladder companies, like if I've already got, if the engine companies already have the hand lines in place, why would I make my truck companies drag a hand line also? Like it's a totally different yeah. scenario if it's like, it's, look for, you got to go to the floor above and it's just you, so you better take a line. But if somebody else well, already has a line up there, I'm how, how much? How much faster do I move without it? You know what I mean? It just, you know, truck truck companies and support companies or rescue companies, we inherently move much quicker than the engine company. Not because we're better. It's just we have less equipment to mess with. You know what I mean? So why would I slow myself down or slow the search down by having to worry about a handline? 100%. Drew, you got anything, any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I got to drive the ladder truck back to the firehouse, so I'll, uh, I got to hop off here. I'll jump back <laughs> on when I can. All right, yep, go ahead we'll and concentrate on that. <laughs> All right. I can't imagine trying to search with the hose line and then be responsible for my own set of personal tools or, or something, too. It's like it's way too much going on. Yeah. You, know, you want me to go in there and search with the hose line? Then I probably need to drop some of this other stuff that I'm carrying. Yeah, for, you know, for, for good reason. Like, Drew doesn't want to drive a fire truck and talk on the phone. How are we going to ask yeah. somebody to, you know, <laughs> do attack the fire and, and do a search, you know, with limited manpower at, at the same time? So, mm-hmm. you know, that, it's an interesting issue, but I think it's I think in some tactical circles that's become like just the way they do it. And, um, you know, I, I think some of it is shrouded under the guise of safety. And I think some of it is 
well, that's just what we do just because, you know, but I don't know that it makes sense. Now, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine it being in an urban environment and these are guys are going in there and actually being able to do that. They, they've got to be bending the rules somehow. Okay, chief, we're going to bring a line in there, but once they get inside, it's like, go. I think that's what I think. I, I know, I'm pretty sure that's what the three of us would do. Um, yeah, I do. I do think there are some. I think there are some companies that are are trying to do it. And I think what's happening is the search is suffering. I think the search. I, I think unfortunately the search isn't what's happening, and or it's happening uh, very very slowly, right? But you know, so we're talking trash on a little bit on the fire attack here. It seems like, but I want to come back and make sure that we emphasize you know, that fire attack and search and ventilation, you know, have to go hand in hand. I mean, would you guys agree? I mean, the the best fire ground scenario is that we have the resources there and we have the coordination there that fire attack searches and ventilation are all happening simultaneously, independently, and in a coordinated manner. I agree. Yeah, Yeah, it's a perfect world. I mean, you're going to have to you're gonna to have to figure out which order that they need to kind of roll in, but yeah, I mean that's that would be great. It would be great to talk about perfect world scenarios, but typically you have a sign here and you give us an ultimatum, which is like, <laughs> I don't know which one to do, fire attack well, or search. It's tough. Well, that that's I mean that's the thing. Like it, like you're saying, that's the perfect scenario, and and I'm spoiled that I have that most of the fires that I run. However, let's revert back to what we're talking about: delaying the search that in rural America, your prioritization of duties is do what, what's the priority? Is it ventilation? Is it search? Is it fire attack? You, you, you gotta, you gotta make that choice. And most of the time, or probably 90% of the time, I'm going to choose search. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm going after the, the targeted area. You know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. oh, it yeah. is, is, it's a, it's a, it's a laundry list that you have to go down very quickly. I think that's a great point. So, you know, and we've we've been in some of these conversations before, you know, I think that two, there's a lot of things, obviously one of the biggest things about truck company work is that there's so much to do and there's so little people and it's all becomes about scenario and prioritize, right? You got to analyze the scenario and then you got to prioritize based on the scenario. But two of the most common things that seem to be competing for a truck company's attention initially are vertical ventilation and the search. So what are your thoughts? This, if, you're, if you place yourself not in Columbia or D.C. and you have time in between units, there's no doubt in my mind that search comes before event. It, that's just, I don't know, I, I feel like I've regurgitated that a bunch. But I'm, I'm more comfortable in an underventilated fire because I'm not afraid of the backdraft or the smoke explosion. I'm more afraid, I would be more afraid of an or a, to a ventilated fire that happened too early before things kind of got in line with, with the fire attack. It's just, I don't know. I feel like today's, in today's world, we ventilate, we're already ventilating a little early. You know, we, we make some kick-ass Instagram videos with Metallica in the background, but the footage shows a ball of fire. And it's like, I don't know, man. I feel like, the, you know, when you do that in rural America, you you put all your eggs in the engine's basket and the engine and the fire attack, unfortunately, come with some of the most common fire ground problems out there. And it has to do with water. Mm. So if you choose ventilation <laughs> before search, 
you will, and you, as I see, what do you, what do you do? You like, oh, they definitely cut a little early. That's okay. But I really just hope that some of the most common problems that happen on a fire ground don't happen to me today. You know, water supply issues, too short of a line, kinks, hoarding, hoarding conditions. You know, it's like definitely should have put our more bodies in the door and weighted on the vent side and, and I, I understand you can weigh the the lean and lift and all the aspects of it but we're not talking about dc we're talking about somewhere where it's like who the next unit is coming what do they do and it's it's definitely going to be search for me because you know you can get them out if they need to and vent is kind of irreversible if you overdo it you overdo it and that's it and then then what you, you can't you can't search on that anymore yeah, and, and I think that's, and, and I want to hear Ford's thoughts on this too, because I know we, three of us and some other friends have, have kicked this ball around a couple times. But, you know, and that's what you're saying. When you say it's not, you know, you're talking about departments that aren't aren't D.C. or aren't Columbia or, or whatever, um, you know, that's not, that really doesn't even refer to like, okay, they're, you know, the type of operations or things like that. But the, what, what we mean is in the environments we've worked in, because all of us, have, you know, we've all worked together, um, or I've worked with everybody here, you know, we put a large first alarm assignment on scene pretty quickly where you got trucks that coming in simultaneously. And, and in almost any tactical scenario where it's where the possible answer to the question of what to do is to do everything right now. Well, that's the right answer. If you have the resources to do everything right now, problem solved, do that. You know, but the 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 greater majority of fire departments out there are you know they're pulling up to a fire that needs 20 things done and they're showing up with 10 people and, and you know when you got more things that need to be done than you have people to do it right now that's where you got to get into that prioritization kind of thing um ford what, what are your thoughts on that so the disclaimer is up front before i say what i'm going to say is i am a huge advocate and i'm very aggressive with when it comes to vertical ventilation i i am 100 percent with that but my my stance on it is you know sometimes people say you know oh we could have done this a little bit better or you know maybe next time this no it, it's a 50 50. you either 50 percent make it better or you 50 percent make it worse when you're when you're choosing to vent now you know I, I get it like we create time and space until you run out of time and space so you got to be able to make the appropriate call and you know we keep beating the dead horse of you know in the perfect world if we got hand lines stretched but i've been on fires before where hand lines have been set, stretched and flowing water and ventilation aggressive ventilation happening simultaneously and what does the truck do right we move faster than the hand lines right so what do we do we keep extending 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 and moving and moving and moving until we burn burn the roof off so you gotta slow down a little bit i want you to be aggressive i want you to get up and cut a hole and i want you to get the big high five high five when you get down for a job well done not a not a job not done well but the thing is slow down a little bit like be be prepared like you know you know, we, I talk with Blake all the time, and he's right. Like, you should be preparing to vent when you leave the firehouse because if you're not anticipating to do it, then you're behind the eight ball, but you got to pump the brakes and make sure that that's the appropriate tactic of choice. You know what I mean? Because there, it's that laundry list of the prioritization of duties, and you got to choose the right ones. Yeah. Well, Drew, this is, right up your, this is right up your alley, you know, 
um, because unless things have changed drastically, you know, as, as the truck driver, I mean, one of your primary jobs is ventilation, probably mostly, you know, a lot vertical, right? And you're leading that outside team of your truck <laughs> company, right? I mean, so what are your kind of thoughts? We're kind of talking about you pull up and, um, you know, there's kind of this, like, I feel like the, the things that a truck company competes with is that if you don't have enough people right now to do everything, the two big decisions that we're competing with is the search and the vent. And, and so how right. do you kind of prioritize that? Or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, if everybody doesn't show up all at once, what are you thinking? Uh, I mean, the, the more things that we can get done concurrently rather than consecutively, one after the other, right? The truck company has a long list of uh, tasks at every fire. The items on that list never change. Every fire we go to, no matter if it's a one-story ranch or a high rise, right? The, the tasks are the same. The order of operation in which we attack those will change every any given fire. So prioritizing between search and vent, those are really two of those things that I want to happen simultaneously. Um, I guess it comes down to staffing and the response that you have, right? I'm lucky enough where we, we, we throw a ton of people at every fire, right? And we getting two trucks initially, five engines, a rescue squad. So there's plenty of people. Um, and like you said, my job primarily relies or revolves around the outside duties. I'm going to throw a couple ladders and if it's called for, right? If vertical ventilation is higher in that list, at that fire, I'm going to go straight to the roof and get a hole. We might start with some horizontal ventilation and then move on and turn that into a, a vertical vent. Yeah. But it's it's all priority based. You have to look at the situation you're dealt with and all right, which of these items in that checklist are moving up to the top. Yeah. But and I think you know our friend Bull said something earlier about always and nevers don't work well in the fire service, and that's true. And and I think it's wise to remember because you know just talking with people, a lot of people around the country, you know there there are some people that you know they they always go to the roof or they never go to the roof, right? And the, and there are some fire departments out there that they everybody goes to the roof and like nobody goes inside, and there are some departments that are vice versa. And I think that putting all of your eggs in one basket one way or the other, we're operating in a manner where your company or your department or you personally always does the same thing at every fire. Well, you're, you're going right against what you said, Drew, which is totally true. You know, every fire might have the same list of things that needs to get done, but it's the order of operations. It's, it's the prioritization during the scenario. And if you're not, you know, adjusting that order of operations based on your size up in the scenario in front of you, well, I mean, you're prob there's a good chance you're not doing the most effective thing. So yeah, I, I mean, we went we went to a went to a little fire last tour. There's on the apartment building, apartment on the second floor of a three story building. Me cutting a hole in that roof isn't going to do a bit of good. Yeah. Right. So that got bumped way down on the on that priority checklist. No, we still sent one one person up to me pop a roof hatch over the stairwell but instead of going straight to the roof um throw more ground ladders yep yep 100 percent. and and you know i i had a i had a fire um one time and i'll just you know 
I'll leave some of the details out, but you know, it was a, a fairly standard early morning fire in a one story house. It was a, a really good fire. I mean, a lot of, a lot of fire, no, no further information. I mean, just, um, you know, regarding people in particular, no real information about whether anybody was in there or not in there. And the outside team, um, had received reports that there was fire in the attic. And I think that led them to kind of focus more on a vertical ventilation thing. Bottom line is they, they never really got a hole in the roof. And to be honest, I don't really think we needed a hole in the roof. And then later, there were two victims found inside of the room that was right next to where they were operating on the outside to make the roof. And, and where had we VES those rooms early, we would have gotten hands on those victims much, much quicker. Um, we did find and remove both of those victims. Um, the inside team did, um, but it was a little bit later on. And, and I think that there, I think honestly at that fire, there was too much of a focus on vertical ventilation that was marginally needed, if, if not not needed at all. And the focus, the, VE, the early VES opportunity was missed. You know what I'm saying? And that's a very unfortunate scenario, but um, when we talk about fires like that, you know, um, and, and all of us have been on, uh, I've been on, on fires with rescues with, with everybody here. And, and so we know some of the best lessons learned about searches, I think, come from stories, you know, come from the fire ground experiences and sometimes where things didn't go so well. And, and, and sometimes a lot of people don't want to talk about, you know, times when an error was made or, or when a lesson was learned you know, because it's, it's frustrating or it's embarrassing or you don't want a black eye or whatever. But, you know, I, I learned stuff, I learned from stuff that went well, but I really learned from stuff that didn't go well. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know if I'm the only one like that, but I, I think it's important to talk about stuff like that. Hmm. I think yeah. you just need to be prepared if you chose vent that things could lean in the favor of getting worse before they get better. And you should have the appropriate amount of people there in case they do. And, and maybe that means that you have at least two hand lines deployed. You know what I mean? Like if it's show up and there's one engine, you show up on the ladder company and that you know that they're in there. To go vent is like, oh, you know, you could really be pushing the ball there. And one thing that we learned, and, and I was driving Chris and we went to an apartment fire and um, it, it was kind of one of those backup in punts, you know, dispatch was basically telling us there's, we're on the phone with somebody that needs to be rescued. And there was a column for two miles. So it's cranking, you know what I mean? And I, I believe he told me what to do when, when we got there, but I already knew that I was going to cut the roof off this entire place while he went in there and tried to get them. And so that's what happened. I mean, there had to have been 150 to 200 square feet of roof open. It was an enclosed stairwell. It's Briargate, Chris opened up the stairwell as best I could, basically stripped it out, started to vent. You turn around, it's just like, holy shit, that's nothing but fire. They got the victim out, guess what happened? Code red. There's just too much exposed fire. We exposed way too much, but we accomplished the task of getting the person out, but we also had to write off the building. And so it's, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, Everybody should know that if we're in that situation and, and there's four or five Sawyers on the roof, they are going to make things worse faster than they can extinguish from the inside. You, it just, you're just not as fast as me on the inside. You know, and it goes back to searching, searching with a, a hose line. You're just not as quick, right? 
And so you just, you can't put out my exhaust. It just can't happen. So it's one of those things where you, re you really have to weigh those options. And if event is the way to go, then you may have to, you know, change tactics after that's over with or be prepared for it. Yeah. Uh, elaborating on that particular fire that Bill's talking about too, is we had, like he said, it was a very well advanced fire already by the time we got there and we had, and I, and I'm going to speak on the pros of ventilation at the time. And we did, we elected to burn that building down to save two lives. And I'll do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. But the problem, the problem became is fire attack at that, at that particular time was, was not even on our radar, right? We, we had a hundred percent went into rescue mode and event for life tactic, right? So we, we, we went into that, that mode went in, we had hand lines with us, but it was nothing more to protect us. It wasn't, it wasn't anything for, to extinguish fire by any means, right? We, we were venting for life. We were trying to get everything up and out to, to be able to, to, to achieve what we did. Right. And, and I would do it, like I said, I'd do it again tomorrow. Um, and, and I said, that's, that's speaking on the benefit of very aggressive ventilation and just, Knowing when to apply that is key. Yeah, what one? Hey, can I answer one of Emily's comments? Yeah, go ahead. One one of her comments is says, "Do most departments rotate position assignments other than driver officer?" I'll go back to when I was working in Columbia. We did that all the time, all the time. Chris, I mean, Chris went from captain to firefighter. I mean, still the captain of the truck, but his assignment changed on the parboard. Everything changed, um, and we actually benefited from it a lot because anytime he was off the seat we would catch a fire so it would be at least two or three two or three times a month where we were <laughs> rotating and absolutely we did that yeah and and i and i think that's a great thing and we do that here i mean we kind of take it to the next level is you know we have um we have people firefighters and engineers that are qualified to be an acting officer you know firefighters that are qualified to be acting drivers whatever and um you know so our you know, we, we provide the freedom to our members that as long as the person that's in the seat, that, that, that's in the, and whether it's the driver's seat, officer's seat or back seat, whatever, is qualified to do the job, I don't care what their rank is, right? And so what I do with that is, you know, we routinely have a captain that's like, hey man, I'm gonna ride the irons today and I'm gonna let my backstep guy that's an acting officer get some officer time and I'll let this guy get some acting driver time. And, you know, it, you know, a lot of departments don't do that. Like if the captain's working, the captain's riding the seat and that's cool. And I, and I get that, you know, but you know, what I've kind of seen with some of the acting officer positions and stuff like that is that a lot of the, a lot of those guys, they might not get a lot of play time, right? Like they might not get a lot of time to be the officer because maybe their regular officer never takes days off or whatever. And so that person's not really getting an opportunity to sharpen their skill. And, and so what we kind of do there is, you know, if the captain jumps in the back and the and the guy in the back is riding the seat, well, they're going to be on the inside team anyway. So, you know, the captain is going to be with the other guy. And what better way for that guy to get mentored? You know what I'm saying? So, but I think also there, the person asking that comment was also kind of implying a little bit, do, do we rotate between engine and truck? You know, do the truck firefighters rotate to the engine and the engine firefighters rotate to the truck? What are your thoughts on that? Who, me? <laughs> I know it, Drew's it thoughts on it. You could certainly, <laughs> do it, you know, run, run, running, running things by the battalion. He would be 
I guess if that's what you want to do, you know what I mean? But I mean, if they're sometimes a lot of departments, the support companies or the truck companies or they exercise in like different types of classes. So it can be difficult in that manner. But if it was eye for eye and everybody was in agreement, I mean, it could certainly go down that way. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. So uh, another topic that's, I think, become hotly discussed lately, and, and some are very much in favor of it and some are are not in favor of it, is is VES and, and searching beyond the door. And, and so what we what I mean by that, just to set the stage for discussion is, you know, of course, in traditional VES, you know, you take the window, um, you go in the window, you isolate, you know, close the door. Maybe, you know, a lot of us would probably like maybe hook the door with our foot or something like that and like body length sweep into the hallway or whatever, maybe. And then, you know, but basically you close the door and then search that room and then you would go back out the window and um, move on to the next window, right? And so that's traditional VES, um, as everybody knows it, but the, in a lot of circles, it's become a discussion point that like, well, once I VES, why don't I just continue out the door into the hallway and do the other rooms, almost as if we were just using that window as, you know, the front door. Um, what are everybody's thoughts on that? Well, no. I'll start. <laughs> and, and I'll so, back you up. <laughs> so that's one, I'm going to try to be a grown-up about it, but VES, why do we choose to VES, number one? What, what were the conditions why we chose to do VES initially, right? Was it fire through the roof? Was there only one room tenable? Was there someone in the front yard saying that they're in that room right there? Is that the reason we chose to do VES? And if I do VES and I continue past the door, then I've just chosen a, an alternate an alternate means of egress. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I just, I chose to go into the window to search, do a primary search. If, if you're going to do that and you're going to go beyond the door, then you're just, we just call it VEP is, is vent enter primary is what you're going to be doing. You know what I mean? And it's no different than going in the alpha front door versus going in a window and continue to search. Now I will say this with leniency is yeah. If you're in a one story ranch that's 1200 square feet and you can reach an adjacent room from, from the bedroom you're in, like, yeah, maybe sweep it real quick, sweep the length of the hallway. But the whole point of VES is to be able to compartmentalize and search that room, you know what I mean, and get back out and go on to the next room and the next room, next room. I, I'm not a big advocate and or a fan of searching beyond the door. Bill, I know we were talking about this earlier. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm not either. Um, and, and my reason is because I tried to reserve that term over the radio as much as I can, because I really think that if I tell command that I'm gonna VES, it's telling him more than what I'm trying to do. It opens up a tactical worksheet for him. It, it says, if Bill's telling me that he's gonna VES on the Charlie Bravo, conditions are really shitty. And maybe I should stretch a line over there just for shits and giggles or, or provide him more support or equipment or something. And so to be able to say that you VES'd and went beyond the door, I think is a kind of misappropriation of, the, of that term. Because if you're VESing, you can't go beyond the door because conditions theoretically really wouldn't allow you to. We're talking about the thickest and the nastiest stuff. And I need to go in and come out in going in with the radio report and coming out and say, hey, we're good. 
conditions where you know we got somebody or it was negative. So for me, if I if and I, I agree with Chris with VEP, a lot of times it's just VEP. You don't even say anything. You're just hopping in the window. You know, there's already 15 people that went in through the front door. Awesome. It's another means of ingress and egress. But for me, if I say VES, I really I'm changing a little bit of the dynamic. Uh, RIT should be alerted. You know what's going on here. You know what I mean. So I, I think it's I think it's a, a high priority term that should be used somewhat responsibly. What do you think? Well, well not or, or go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead Ford. Well, I mean, just kind of piggybacking on that, and it, you know, like Bill was saying, like if the conditions are so bad that you had to choose to do VES because there was only a couple tenable spots, if you're going in and decide to continue past that door, how are you? If you're not closing the door, compartmentalize. How are you adversely affecting the fire? You know what I mean? Like, what what are you? How are you making it worse? You know what I mean? Like, if, if the whole thing is about compartmentalization and being able to search, a, you know, a targeted space, like, are you essentially making it worse by just kind of moving through the building? Or, or Nick, you're always in the car a lot of times with the guys watching. If I announce over the radio that I'm VES in this particular space and I don't come back out of this space and 30, 45 seconds later, that room flashes. Where do you think I'm at? Yeah, in, in that room. In, yeah. that, in that room, right? Like, But no, I, I'm, I'm good because I walked out the front door. You know what I mean? Like, I'd expect you to come chew my ass afterwards. You know what I mean? Because I just was basically freelancing inside of the house. What are you thinking, Drew? Yeah, this is an interesting topic, and I've actually been um, – the guy that runs the search culture page, it's Justin um, – McWilliams. McWilliams talks a lot about this. I actually like a lot of his points. So VES to me is a very, very isolated, not that we need to add the I in there, that, that shit's dumb, but targeted search, right? Uh, I roll up and mom's in the front yard going, my baby is in that window right there, that room. And I know I can reach them by performing VES faster than that interior crew is going inside. Or... Um, I know that that interior search team, that, that my inside team is going to be delayed by fire conditions, right? And I know I can access a farther point in that building, an upper floor, something like that, faster. Or like Bill and Chris said, fire conditions are so bad throughout the majority of the building, we've identified this, this searchable space, this one room, these two rooms, wherever it may be. So you're on the clock. Right. It's not, I don't care if, I don't care if you just go in the window to do a search, right? Hey, the, the stairwell was clogged up and my interior team said, Hey, we're going to go in this window because that's where we want to start our search from. Well, fine. I don't care. And you can cover the entire floor, but that's not VES, right? So differentiate between the two. If you're going to go far beyond the door and go into other rooms down the hallway, around the corner, wherever you're, you're not doing VES. We need to keep that, that term like, to, to what it truly is there. I don't have the time due to the fire conditions, right? Or whatever other factors. I think I can make this room really quick and get the hell out. I'm going to close that door by myself time. I'm all about, you know, before you close that door, sweep the hallway, or, you know, a body length search out into the hallway. I'd hate to slam that door shut and then come to find out later there's, there's a victim on the other side of that door. They tried to make it out and got overcome by smoke and dropped, you know, four feet out in the hallway away from their bedroom, right? That wouldn't sit well with me. So do that by length search, close the door, do your search and get out. And again, this kind of 
determined by staffing, but a lot of times VES is a, a one-man operation. So, um, you know, not saying I haven't uh, gone off on uh, on my own a time or two before. You know, if it weren't for freelancing, I'd do no lancing at all. Um, but that, that's that's not good for the overall operation, right? Like, if, if I go down, no, no one knows where I am to come help. Yeah. Or I do find a victim, right? I went beyond the door. Or I went to the next room down, and I find a victim. Well, now no one knows where the hell I am to come help me get them out, right? That's, that's the great caveat point. to VES, like, it's typically a one man operation doing the search, right? Maybe one more on the ladder. If you have them available again, staffing dependent, um, but go ahead and try and lift a 175 pound human being out of a window by yourself. Oh, and who's going to receive them on the ladder, right? You need, you need someone there too. Yeah. So like the VS is a very niche tactic, right? There's, there's some factors that gotta be hit for me to say, yes, this is what I'm doing. Right, or I'm going to VES. Um, otherwise, you're just you're just starting a primary search from a window, right? If I open the front door to a house, I'm creating ventilation. I cross the threshold, I'm entering, and I'm going to search. Well, it's no different from me cracking a window and going in that and doing starting my primary search, right? No difference in that. I'm I'm totally for that, right? If that's the most advantageous position to start your your primary search of whatever floor and whatever building you're in, cool, go do it. But don't call it VES. Yeah, I I think everybody's hit on a lot of great points. And I think we go back to what somebody said is like, we're looking at why are we VESing, right? And there's two reasons that I would look at and say why we're VESing, right? Is, is so one of the kind of the adages that I always kind of promote is we want to, we want, when we're searching, we want to, we want to take the path that is the fastest path to the known or suspected victim location, right? So we either know or we think that this is where the victim is. And if the fastest path is to go through the window, then VES is the thing. And that could be because of fire conditions. It could be because of forcible entry challenges. It could just be because the fire's on the first floor or in the front of the house and everybody's jammed up at the front door. I mean, you all know that log jam. And so it might be like, hey, we're gonna go in through the window, okay? So. <clears throat> that's the one scenario. The other scenario is conditions-based, right? Is that maybe it's the low manpower situation we talked about earlier and you don't effectively have enough people to get a good fire attack going on and do this space. Well, anytime we do an oriented search, oriented searches are you know, almost always, almost always by definition much longer than VESs because you're searching the entire floor plan of at least one floor and kind of just starting at point A and all and going all the way to point Z, just feeling your way around. When you're doing a VES, you know you're in a much smaller space, and it's just it's just faster done, right? So you know whenever we go for that oriented search, if there is not good water on the fire, if we don't have a line on the fire, then what's happening the entire time we're doing the oriented search is that the fire is growing, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, on this phone call or, or watching it that's been driven out of a building in the middle of a search because the fire, because conditions deteriorated. And what that means when conditions deteriorate is the fire got bigger. You, you know what I mean? This, and we couldn't continue the search. So if we don't support the fire attack, we're not going to be able to continue that search. And, and I say all that to say is that my biggest concern about search beyond the door is that the person making that decision does not know if we have water on the fire, 
and, and does not know if the water is on the fire in a, in a location and in a manner that is going to protect the searcher when they go beyond the door, right? The other half of the conversation, if it gets you to places and people quicker, that's all good, right? But you've got to make sure that when you leave that door that you're going to be in a protected environment. And, and the classic example where you could get caught in a really bad spot is being on an upper floor, say the second floor of a house. You VES the second floor front bedroom. You're like, I got this. I'm going to make the rear bedroom. And fire's on the first floor. You know, you, you leave the bedroom. You're in the hallway. Something happens on the first floor. Maybe the line's no good. Maybe the fire takes off, comes up the interior stairway, and it, it overtakes you and cuts you off from your exit. And, and like Drew was talking about, nobody knows you're there. Nobody, they think if, if anything, they think you were in the room, right? But they don't know that you're there. And so I, I think, you know, that searching beyond the door could be a viable tactic if you happened to know everything else that was going on. Um, but I also think that it's in many situations, you don't know everything else that's going on. You know, if I was, if I had done a 360 myself, and I was doing a paying really good attention to the radio and the engines were doing a really good job about calling water on the fire and fire knockdown over the radio. You know, if I had that kind of information, I might feel in a really good place to go beyond the door. But I think in a lot of places, people are going beyond the door and they have no idea if there's water on the fire. They have no idea what the configuration of the, of the building is and where their next egress is. And nobody knows where they're at, where they are. Nobody knows that they've gone beyond the door. And, and I think that adding a couple of those things up are a recipe for disaster. I don't know. Am I off base? What do you guys, what do you guys think? So spot on. I thought you might say that. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think going beyond the door opens yourself up to a lot. And you, you got to look at it and how your what your staffing is, how many people you have dedicated to this task, right? Are you doing it by yourself? Or do you have a, a partner there with you or, or more, right? Is it a team or whatever? Um, this actually came up in conversation here, here with my guys not too long ago because um, we've, we've got a rookie and he's, he's getting kind of turned over in, in all the different positions. And we we're talking about VES and kind of the way we run it is while we're nowhere near short staff, we've got plenty of bodies, I'm pretty sure, if, with the amount of people we put on scene in short order, if we just all walked into the fire apartment and we just displace all the air and snuff the fire out. And sometimes that's what we do. Um, but just how we break our tasks down, I have two people going in on the inside team, right? There are interior search team that leaves me, the other technician and our hook man on the outside. So my hook man is going to help us with some outside tasks until I don't need him anymore. I cut him loose. He goes and meets up with the interior team, and I go to the roof. If VES is called for, right, some of those conditions that I talked about earlier are met for me, that Hookman and I are throwing ladders together right off the break. That's the first thing we do, right? If VES is truly called for, it's probably going to be one of those first tasks we take on, and it's time-sensitive. So we're doing that together initially but i'm coming off a ladder truck as you see me now right this is how i drive um so we're throwing ladders we identify hey 
I want you to VES that rim right there. And as soon as that ladder is thrown, he's going up, and I'm boogieing back to the truck to get dressed. So now we do have to make a radio transmission to command, telling him, hey, we're, we're VESing and where. Um, but the way we do it there, now I have a little bit more accountability over that guy, right? I know one person can search a room by himself, right? But it's the, if he gets hemmed up or, hey, he does find a victim, right? The, this thing actually worked out as intended. You're going to need help to get that victim out. Yeah. So where the chief heard him say, hey, I'm VESing, you know, the Bravo side, second floor, I know exactly what window I put him in, right? I know which ladder he went up. I know what window he did, and I know exactly where he is. So if I don't hear from him in a reasonable amount of time, I know exactly where to go look for him. Right. If I do hear him on the radio, like, hey, you know, truck 16 hook, I've got a victim, second floor bedroom. I know exactly which one he's in. I know exactly where to go to go help him remove that victim. Now, if your game plan is a little bit different and you go with the traditional model, if you will, of VES, where one one dude's searching and the other is at the at the tip of the ladder, kind of as that anchor point and waiting to receive a victim. And that guy inside goes, hey, uh, I really think we, we can make this hallway. We can make the next room down. We really need to do it. Well, if that other person can hop in that window and now you've got a team of two, you can update command or update your officer or the other team working inside or whoever you need to. Okay, now now it's not just you off running around by yourself. You've updated command or whoever you need to so they have some more accountability of you. Uh, okay, do it then. But again, we need to keep in mind the conditions of why we decide to VES in the first place. Was it just because... We had a report of someone trapped in that room and they got that wrong and the conditions are still okay. Or did I choose the VES because the conditions are deteriorating in the rest of the house or apartment, wherever. And I thought I could get in there really quick. And now if I go beyond, um, I'm running that timer out. And Drew, and Drew, made, go ahead, Drew made a great, Drew made a great point, Nick, when he was talking about, having a team of two come up if he, if the partner thinks that he can move on past that, just the change in status that I see is, is paramount, right? You, you got to come across the radio and give that change in status. Like if you started with VES and, and you're going to change tactics and move and move on to whether we want to call it a primary or what, whatever we're going to call it, but that, that radio transmission has to happen. And I think, you know, when Drew said that, like, I, I can't agree with him anymore then if you, you just put it across the radio, just simplicity. I know a lot of people don't want to talk on the radio and tie up red traffic, but just, you know, a simple change of status, you know, we'll be going to go on the XYZ location. And once you get a copy, I mean, you're basically free range to do what you want. Yeah, that, that, that would be my advice as well. Is, you know, I do think it's a good idea. I mean, from the command perspective or whatever, you know, that, that if you're going to VES, that they make that transmission. You know, ladder 1 OB command, VES in the second floor, you know, Alpha Bravo corner, okay? And, and I, I write that on my board. I have a little, well, I have one out here somewhere, but I have a little spot on, I mean, a, a little wrote, write for, for a place for writing notes, and I would just write ladder 1 OV, you know, VES, you know, VES um, second floor AB, and I, I abbreviate that a little bit. But then when they call me and they say, it's clear, you know, then I would just cross that out, and that tells me they're out of the building. But it, it would be a simple transmission, you know, ladder one OV, you know, to command, you know, we have tenable conditions on the second floor. We are going to search the rest of the second floor while we're in here. 
and then I'll either say yes or no. And I mean, if, if, if it looks like it's the right thing to do, then I would, I would err towards giving them the green light. But I mean, I think it's important, you know, that, that, that be communicated. Um, you know, there are some times where it's a necessary tactic. You know, I, I remember, I don't remember what street it was, but it was in, it was in, uh, January a few years ago, um, in the Densville area. And, uh, you know, we pulled up, it was a first shift fire. So I don't remember if either of you guys were there, but I mean, three townhomes going, um, and there was a known victim entrapment on the, uh, second floor end unit. And I mean, when I say going, I mean, I mean, you know, top to bottom, front to back and, Probably the only reason they were in the original fire building was the known entrapment. And so bottom line, the stairs were way burnt out. And I know everybody's thing is like, well, throw a ladder over them. Well, that works really good quickly when you have some visibility, when you're not being ate up by fire, and when the stairs don't make a 180-degree turn off a landing. Um, but that's what was going on at this fire, so that wasn't an option. And then guys were trying to, you know, you know, you don't want a townhome. You've only got um, you've got limited windows. Now, fortunately, this was an end unit, so there there was a Bravo side exposed, but there were no windows on the Bravo side, and then the Delta was, of course, attached. Well, they go in the Alpha side second floor window, and the floor was trash. I mean, they just they they tried to you know ves from the front and make it in through this window, and the the floor was just trash, and you know, but um, ultimately. You know, they ended up bringing an attack line up the ladder through the window, supporting the search and kind of basically, you know, at that point, you know, th then they dominated the second floor and they, they finished searching and they ultimately found the guy. Um, but at that point, that's not that has that has moved from a VES to transforming the second floor window into an attack point. You know what I'm saying? It might as well have been a door um, and because we're taking an attack line through there. Um, to support the search with the fire attack. And to me, if that's what we're doing, if we're taking a line through the window, maybe in a scenario like that, well, in that case, of course, we're going through, we're going beyond the door because, you know, we've addressed the problem about why we would isolate. You know, we isolate because of fire behavior. But if I, if the engine company came with me and brought an attack line, we handled that. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know if either of you guys remember that fire or, or, you know, that scenario, but what are your thoughts on that? I think that would work perfect. I mean, but you're, you, just like you said, you're changing it completely from in and out quickly to in and continuing in. And Justin had asked something kind of similar. He had asked about compounding the search, primary search coupled with VES that you meet in the middle. I mean, personally, you know, I kind of stand where I said, if I'm going to VES, that the middle for me is going to be the middle of that room. You know, I'm, I'm probably not likely to meet the primary search crew because they're not where I'm at, you know, because I have to go in this way and I have to likely go out the way that I came in. So it can happen. I've been interrupted and just said, Hey, I, we're doing a VES. Yeah. Um, but it is what it is. But I think, yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to re reattach people to that and basically send a task force up there and have extinguishment capabilities, then you're, you're free to go. Yeah. And, and I mean, so that that's kind of obvious. That's an uncommon scenario. That's a kind of unique scenario there, mm -hmm. um, you know, based on the entrapment and based on the tenability conditions and all that kind of stuff. Um, <coughs> but, you know, another thing kind of I think worth talking about is a lot of the conversation we're talking about when we VES. Are you guys VESing often? Um, you know, our guys 
VES all the time. I mean, a lot. Uh, now, now we send three service companies, um, two ladder companies and a heavy <laughs> rescue on fires. And they all, on a residential fire, three stories or below, they all split into inside or outside teams. So, you know, there's usually quite a bit of staffing. Um, we're fortunate. There's, there's a good bit of staffing on the outside where a lot of those outside tasks can happen. But one of the things we find is that, you know, VES is often very valuable and it's not, it's not something that we're just doing in an extreme situation with, you know, terrible fire conditions, but oftentimes it's just the fastest way to get into targeted locations. What are, what are your guys thoughts? Is it it something you're doing all the time or something rarely or what? It's few and far between. I mean, it it happens. I I say that with leniency. I mean, it happens a good bit in Columbia. I mean, people are still aggressively VES and um, more so along the lines of from the targeted standpoint, I would say so than just, you know, an alternate means of getting into the building, sort of say. Um, But definitely, I would say more so if conditions don't permit, you know, your traditional entry, then we're going to go with that. But VES for Columbia would be more more so on the lines. It's, it definitely is a targeted search. Conditions are, are shitty, and, and that's what we've chosen to go with. Yeah. Bill? Yeah, I mean, when I was on the truck in Columbia, I felt like my I had other duties that I wanted to secure, and it's not that I would bypass an opportunity to VES, but we were fortunate enough to be backed by a good rescue company in a lot of the jurisdictions, so they would handle a lot of that. And I would support them and try and keep myself on the outside. Um, you know, I, I always say that the big three for me is fire attack, search, and egress. And, you know, the inside crew can handle the search. Fire attack is obviously belongs to the engine or sometimes whoever picks up the nozzle. But, you know, I, I really wanted everybody to feel that when I was outside vent or the chauffeur, that you could pick any window in that building and come out and you're going to meet a ladder. And so, you know, I know we'll talk about ladders and stuff like that here shortly, but for me, it was, it was, uh, strongly targeted for that room in and out uh, and it's situation dependent, you know, Hey, there's five kids inside. It's like, all right, that's going to yeah. change things. I mean, you know? we, we've kind of developed over time here, a, a pretty elaborate, um, matrix of, of operations that we look for the outside team to do. And on a residential fire, um, the first outside vent team member, most of the time, their primary job is going to be basically below the roof work. And, and the first thing they're look, really the first thing they're looking for is a VES opportunity. And we say that because we want that to be the first thing they're looking for, because if it is if there is a VES opportunity, that's the thing to do. And, and we kind of I've kind of said that, you know, based on some experiences, one of the stories I told earlier, you know, where there there could have been a, a VES opportunity and it was missed. And, and and therefore there was delayed access to a victim because we were focused on other things. I mean, I think we're all we're all in the same boat that, that the number one thing we're looking for is is on the fire is to save lives. You guys talked about Briargate burning down the building to save two people and, and, and how at the end of the day, that's a win. And that's correct. Um, and so I want them to look for that VES opportunity. And then the next thing they're looking for after the VES opportunity is horizontal ventilation, right? So again, this is, we're talking about a residential building, three stories or below. Their priority is basically VES, 
um, horizontal ventilation, egress, and then getting into the utilities. And we kind of look at that from the reverse thing is like, I don't want to be focusing on utilities if egress needs to be done. I don't want to be focusing you know, on egress if ventilation should be done. And I don't want to be focusing on that if there should be a VES. And so to clarify, when I say egress, you might need to do egress to do either ventilation or search. I, I need to throw a ladder and or I need to take these window bars or, or whatever. That might be part of, of doing ventilation or doing a primary search or doing a VES. When I talk about egress as its own category, I talk about that kind of as the extras. Like, okay, let me throw all the extra ladders. Let me go get all the extra um, you know, bars or, or egress issues or whatever. We want to get to those, but not, but just in most cases, I think not at the expense of initial horizontal ventilation, if we're ready for that, um, and, you know, VES opportunities. And so that's kind of what the priorities of that first outside team member are for us. And then the matrix, and there's tools assignments that go on for us. For us, it's appropriate length ladder. And sometimes, a lot of times, that's the VES ladder, those shorter ladders, and a hook and a bar. And that's that's like the primary tool complement that's going to help them get that done. And then the second OV member um, is, that, that arrives is going to be kind of getting ready to go to the roof kind of thing. And so their tool complement is going to be a next appropriate ladder, appropriate saw, and some kind of breaching tool. I mean, whether that's an axe or a pig or you... You guys know as well as I do that everybody has their favorite, you know, tool to break a, to bust a hole in a roof, but something that'll work if the ax does, or if the, if the saw doesn't start kind of thing to finish up a hole or something like that. But that's kind of our initial workflow. What, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Or, you know, what are the workflows you guys are used to? I, th I think I'll jump ahead of you, Chris. Um, I think it's area dependent, you know, and you can bring up Columbia again, you could have terrible areas that are loaded with window bars and then you can go five miles down the road and meet new construction and i think you know in chris's area specifically as the ov guy i've had a lot of things that i could be doing and that that weren't necessarily vs obviously that was still on my list and i'm pro vs of course but you know it's also just depends is it an attached garage fire is it fire in two or three two out of the three bedrooms, you know, things are always going to be dynamically changing. And I always wanted to at least tackle for me, I would run VS as a targeted search in and out, knowing that the inside crew is going to be in there. And I would also be focused on a lot of egress things. So I had plenty of window bars, plenty of cages, a lot of things I could handle, you know, in, in at least that truck's position. Ford? There's a lot of different things, a lot of different variables like Bill was talking about. And, and, and it all, I hate to use to cop out as situation and scene dependent, but it really does differ between uh, one story mom and pop ranch style to a multifamily dwelling. Because if I pull up on an apartment fire and, you know, my priorities are going to be a little bit different, but, you know, we don't, on the trucks, we don't want to so much moth to the flame, if you will, because, yeah, I am concerned where the fire is at right now, but I want to forecast to where it's going to be. So if there's a tremendous amount of egress issues around the building and depending on how fast the fire is moving, whatever is going to greatly be dependent on the tactic that I choose. And is egress more important than ventilation or is ventilation more important? And, and I am spoiled to have a, a very aggressive, uh, very smart 
very effective rescue company that comes with us on a lot of fires that's there the same time we are and we'll we'll flip-flop a lot of times it will flip-flop in delegation of duties to like who's going to handle egress and who's going to handle ventilation you know a lot of times on one-story houses you know rescue may be on the roof before i can even get off the truck you know what i mean so i have no problem with my guys grabbing a saw and handle the egress issues because once again i am an advocate for vertical ventilation but i am I am a huge proponent of egress over ventilation a lot of times because I, I don't want that to be a problem well into the fire. Yeah. yeah. And it's a lot of, a lot of times it could be duplication of efforts. You know, if, if you're in that scenario with, with, with what just, I guess what Chris just said and rescue beats them and they go two and two out riding four, they got two in and two out on the roof. There's really no need to accompany them on the roof at that point either. So, I mean, you could dump six inside or run four inside and two running VES. I mean, and and it's predetermined in Columbia that's how they do that. And you know, you all know that. But you know, the the outside vent team on the second do support company links up with the first do support. So if you can predetermine that ahead of time and say, hey, we're gonna go cut. Why don't y'all just go all in? Yeah, you know what I mean, or do something well, else. And and one thing, you know, both of you kind of what you're talking about highlights. I think what all three of us are talking about highlights is that. We're all talking about departments that, you know, are lucky and or smart enough to send enough people to have a lot of people to throw at the truck work. You know what I mean? Whether it's the inside or the outside truck work. And it, man, it just really makes you think like when we travel around the country and you talk to different departments and they're, they're going to fires with, you know, maybe one three person ladder truck. And, and some of them are going to fires in pretty big buildings, you know, even pretty big houses, you know, the, the New England triple deckers, the, uh, you know, the New England two and a half frames, you know, and they're going with one, some departments going with one three person truck. And, you know, here we are, and we're kind of like him and hawing about how we're going to take like, what, like nine to 12 people <laughs> and, and yeah. handle all this truck three, work. Three and they're trying to do the, how you're going to do the same thing with three people is beyond me. And the answer is you're not, you know, you're going to, you're yeah. just going to, you're going to pick what you're not going to do at that point. Hmm. I mean, it, what I are mean, your guys it, thoughts? It, I mean, if, if the run cars are still the same, you know, at a house fire in Columbia, you're getting, you know, one ladder and one rescue in addition to the en the three engines. But on an apartment fire, you're getting two ladders and a rescue. Now, obviously, you go to some of the larger apartment complexes. It's a it's a totally different thing. But you guys know we would get dispatched to an apartment fire and get two ladders and a rescue. And it was basically, you know, a small house that was cut up into apartments. So how did how did you guys feel being on the ladder companies there? How did your how did your workflow change? You know when you were going from a one engine one rescue response to a two ladder one rescue response. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than there being like a, if it was a, well, say they're like similar building sizes. I get that it's very different when you're talking about a much larger apartment building. Well, I, I mean, if support would run. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. If, if you're talking about a smaller footprint, it, it benefits us tremendously because it slows everything down. I mean, the, the tasks are still being done, but with that much personnel on that smaller occupancy type, you know, don't, don't disregard people. Just achieve the task, you know, all at one time, but it, it kind of slows down the operation. Everybody is being a little bit more situationally aware, and they're being able to achieve it a lot, a lot smoother, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, and on I the think, small footprint, it's it's one of those things where they can be utilized or not. Speaking for that third support company, but on the larger footprints, 
then you can start to divvy up in the divisions and start to work the the floors too. Yeah. Well, well, Nick, well, Nick, you were alluding to the smaller departments. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll use my hometown department. Like, if they they go to a, a one story mom and pop tonight, they get three basically three companies. And if they go to a multifamily dwelling tonight, they get three companies and they make it work. You know what I mean? It just, and and those guys are really good at what they do. It just, we keep talking about the priorities, but they really have their priorities, you know, nailed down. Like, Hey, on a multifamily, we're getting three units and every one of them are riding short. Every one of those three piece units have three people on it. You know what I mean? So can you imagine, you, you know, the OV guy on a multifamily of a three person, like you're, you have to be a stud, you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to be a stud to achieve what you need to. Well, and, and that's all, that's all if you don't find a victim. I, I, I think, right. to, I, I think tonight everybody at some point has pointed out like how much, how much work it is when you do find a victim. I mean, you might be in the gym every day, you might be in shape, but I mean, I think everybody, every one of us knows that like the average 150 to 175 pound unconscious adult will humble all of us real quick um, in a fire. Cause it is hard for those that haven't done it yet. I mean, it is hard as hell to move an unconscious human being in a fire. And it's a, it's just a time. It, it yeah, is a personnel suck. I mean, it's going to suck the personnel out of your incident. Go ahead, Chris. You want to say something? Uh, did, I mean, yeah, the dead weight. I mean, they turn into one of the balloon, the balloon people at the car dealership. You know what I mean? You, they, uh, uh, a dead weight body, they, they fold in ways that you wouldn't think that they do. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. uh, you're absolutely right. It's a pain in the ass dealing with dead weight. Well, and that's, if you, so if you're already on, if you're already understaffed from the truck company perspective, when you arrive, you're going to be, you're going to be donezo when they find a victim, you know, because I mean, Every time I found a real victim at a fire that I can think of while I'm talking here, it was pretty much the last thing I did on that fire. Because like once I pulled that dude out or helped him pulling that person out, I was just, I mean, cooked, you know, and, and maybe I just need to be stronger. I don't know, but it seemed to happen to a lot of the other people also. But what I mean by that is, is you got to account for, if you got to remove this victim, that's, there's probably two or three people there that that's, I mean, they're going to just, they're going to be exhausted when they're done. And they may also be providing, you know, patient care. And I know, you know, don't give me the EMS demerit, but like the point of removing the victim is so that they live, right? And part of that is making sure they have the medical care when they get out. And, you know, you know, all three of us, we, we would do that when we were running academy stuff together is, you know, make sure that when the recruits would bring somebody out, you know, they, they started CPR or whatever, but that's a real world thing. You know, it, the, the, the game doesn't end once they remove and again not to commit not to continue down the ems demerit route but just because i've seen this happen I, i've seen fire victims brought out of a building and they go to hand it over to ems or to the medics and there is no medics and that like now we're calling for them we got a victim on the front lawn you know a, a couple people from our limited staffing are doing cpr and the ambulance is on its way the survivability or the likelihood of survival for that person is is not good um and well, go ahead well, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I'm not, and I'm not shitting on EMS agencies at any rate. But there's very, very, very seldom that I've seen victims come out, and EMS is ready to receive the patient. You know what I mean? It is, I, I, I've, you know, I've seen Bill 
you know, he was talking about one, you know, sometimes when I rode the back of the truck, one night in particular, he was riding the seat. They drug a guy out of a house and they pumped on that guy's chest for quite a few minutes on the sidewalk before EMS ever picked him up. And, and you, you got to be prepared to do that. And that's, that was the biggest thing that I used to love and still love about our academy that our recruits are prepared to do that because if you train that you just hand a victim off or you just or you drop the dummy on the ground when you come out of the thing that will create muscle memory and you'll do that in real life you you'll bring you'll bring the victim out you'll set them on the ground and you'll turn around and walk back inside yeah and, and there are some departments that that aren't even sending ems on a structure fire dispatch it's not until there's a confirmed person trapped or it's not until it's upgraded to a working fire and i'm like man that you know for a million reasons whether it's civilian victims or firefighters like that I just don't think that's the right thing to do. You know, I mean, the likelihood of survival from a house fire is already uh, it, the, the window of opportunity for a civilian to survive. That is already narrow enough. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't be playing any games of taking seconds off that clock if you really want that person to survive. You know what I mean? And, and again, that we're all amp we're all amped up about search. And I know that most of us would rather be on the fire truck than on the ambulance. But remember, the reason we're all amped up about search and it's about them and it's it's not what's it's, it's not what's survivable with what's searchable. The reason all that exists is so that this person lives and goes home and, and getting them out of the building is only half, if that, only half, if that of that equation. You know, they've got mm -hmm. you got to make sure that, that we're ready to, to do something with them after that. I'm not going to talk about EMS. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so, I can't believe I can't believe I've the comments haven't come yeah. in yet, but, you know. It's, it's, I think it's, it's a, it. I think it's a protocol problem, really. You know, it, it's just one of those things. You expect a lot from them because they, you know, you feel like they should understand what you just went through to get that person out. And then for them to be like, man, he says to that's, that's it. That's it. Go get the bag. And it's like, man, like you got to do something for my, for, for me, you know, you know, it's like that. Is that going to be me one day? It's like, ah, oh, dude, sorry, man. Yeah. So it is what it is. Yeah. So, well, I feel like we've had a really good conversation tonight. There's a lot of other things we can get into, so maybe we need to do a search, uh, a search podcast uh, part two. Um, you know, are there any other things you guys wanted to get into here tonight, or? Um, if we do a part two, I, I think we still have a lot to cover on part two. Do you want to? Do you want to touch on VS ladders before we? Yeah, that that's always a out. that's always a hot topic, and. Um, you know, the VES ladders, I have a little video here. I'll kind of throw up real quick, just the showing kind of, um, well, I have a couple of them. I'll pick one here and kind of throw it up and you'll kind of see one in, in action here. Go ahead.
So that was just a, a video from a, a recent fire, kind of starts off there where you can see that VES ladder. Um, and so let's kind of talk a little bit about that. What, what is the VES ladder and, and when, when do we use it? What are your guys' thoughts? So, I mean, basically, it's, they, I've seen them vary anywhere from four foot to eight foot in length, depending on uh, how you cut them down. And a lot of times when we have them, it's a decommissioned ladder and then we've there's still a portion of the ladder that can still be utilized. So we'll cut it down to the appropriate length that we have. And a lot of times we use it for, you know, we, we, if a, a home that's built into grade, you know what I mean? It, it's got a little bit higher. It might be one store in the front, but two, uh, you know, high, high crawl space, maybe two in the rear. And I can, I can leap into the window just by utilizing that. Um, but, you know, we have them, um, they get pulled, you know, a decent amount. Um, but a lot of times, you know, people have concerns, you know, and I, and, and rightfully so some departments and a little bit more strict and they're like, well, if that ladder was already decommissioned, why are we trying to utilize it for something else? You know what I mean? And, and, and I, and I get the argument behind it, but it's, it's such a reduced length that the, the weight bearing that's on that ladder is nothing more than a step up. You know what I mean? It's, it's no different to me by using that shorter ladder is me using a Halgen bar against, against the, 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 the building to get a step up, right? Like, is yeah. that Halgen bar designed to climb? No, it's not, but it helped me get my ass into that's, the window. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's the number one question. Anytime I post anything about these VES ladders and how we cut them down is like, well, are we, you know, are we NFPA testing those? I'm like, well, I mean, you know, does your department let you stand on a Halgen bar to go in a window? Do you, do you, and it, do you, you know, do you have to get the Halligan bar tested to make sure it'll, you know, it's, dude, it's like six feet, it's like six, eight feet. You know what I mean? Um, well, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't, it doesn't have any real weight bearing to it. You know what I mean? It's, it's a step up. You know what I mean? It just, I mean, you, you could take a damn five gallon bucket in the backyard and, and use it to get in the window for all I care. But, but man, they, they are worth their weight in gold, in my opinion. I mean, cause it's, it, it's the, the classic thing is it's for the window that's like too low enough to need a real ladder but it's too tall enough just to hop in. And that's a lot of windows. You know, a lot of windows are just, you know, the base of that window is kind of right there, like just below your chest. And it's like, man, I could like try and muscle up in here, but that's really hard, you know, when you've already done other fire ground tasks and you're wearing gear in an air pack and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. what, what are you thinking, Bill? I think that they're, I think they should be on all ladder companies or supports or however, it, it, put them on an engine, I don't care. It's a, it is a decommissioned ladder. Um, typically, that's how you make them. I think that they should be mounted visibly because um, I think out of sight, out of mind. And I, I love them, but I haven't had good luck with them. Every time I mean? pull that thing, every time I pull that thing, you know, it's either a house that's just like loaded up with boxwoods and the bushes and everything's overgrown. You know, the houses that burn in some of these cities are, you know, in the areas where it's like, eh. We could have we could have guessed that there was going to be a fire at this place one day, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, sometimes you know, crews, you have to pick your complement of tools, whether that's a ladder and a hook or a trash hook or whatever it is, and be multifaceted. And so sometimes you can still achieve the VES with a 14 or 16 foot straight, and you know, the VES is really just used for one thing. You know, yeah. for the most part, you can, we can get creative, and I think it's I think it's also beneficial of getting people out too, because you know, I may have used a fourteen or sixteen foot to get in, 
hey, give me that VES ladder. I can catapult this person from inside. You know, hoarder conditions are now putting a 16 foot straight inside mm -hmm. this in, inside this bedroom. That's so great. just learn to work with it a little bit. Um, you know, for me, I try and carry a cache of equipment that can cover a lot of things. You know, I carry a, a bar and I carry a New York hook. And if I'm OV, then I like my straight ladders. But, you know, and I feel like I can do a lot with, with that. And I don't have to go back to the truck. So it's one yeah. of those things. We, we've started, um, you know, a lot of our fire trucks, um, for better or worse, are, are from a Quint era. And so um, what has really happened on the ladder trucks is where there used to be a cross lay uh, or two, the, the hose has been removed and those are now VES ladders and they hold it mm -hmm. great. Um, mm -hmm. on, our newer, on our newer companies, you know, our new heavy rescue, we specified a place for VES ladders. I mean, there's, it's, right, it's right when they come out of the cab because we use them all the time. So it's, it was part of the spec as we built chutes for him. And we did the same thing mm -hmm. on a new ladder truck that we just ordered is it's become a very integrated thing to the point that we're specifying locations, um, for these on the rig. And they're not, they're not in the ladder tunnel. Um, you know, cause mm -hmm. they're, you leave that space for the longer ladders, but then, you know, being that they're about the width of a fire truck or less, it's a perfect thing to put in a, some kind of transverse spot. If you have that available to you. Mm hmm so yeah i've seen them on the turntable seven carries one exteriorly you know if you got something like the boston spec i'm sure you can slide something in there you know yeah if you, if you got a mid-mount tower like you know like an aerial scope or something like that you know under the boom going mm -hmm. across the rig or under the bucket i mean if you look around there's a lot of great places you can you can jam these things and uh you know if you don't get wrapped around the axle about nfpa and nfpa testing a six foot ladder um, they're pretty easy to come by because everybody's got some old scrap ladders. You cut them up. It's easy to find spots on the rig for them. They're very lightweight. Um, so it's, I mean, it's pretty easy win, you know? Yeah. All right. Thoughts, anything? I'm good. I think we covered right. quite a bit. It was a lot. Yeah. And we got, we got a lot more. So, you know, th those listening, if you liked what you, what you heard tonight, you know, number one, everybody that was on here is, is, you know, part of our cadre of instructors, particularly our truck company operations and aerial operations programs. So if you're looking for anything to kind of amp up, you know, truck operations or some of this, th these topics in your department, you know, please reach out to us for some more information. And, uh, you know, it sounds like we're going to try and do another, you know, maybe a part two to this where we get into some other issues. So if you have any other things that we didn't get to get into tonight that you would like to see addressed, drop them in the comments shoot them to me um, via email or go to our website. You can fill out a form there and it'll send it to us and some things we can get into on this or future podcasts. But um, really appreciate everybody jumping on tonight. Hope everybody got some good stuff to take to the firehouse, to the bay floor and the kitchen table next shift. And uh, we'll be on here again next month. And until then, stay combat ready.